Kit, here for the Ink Studs Commonwealth Substitute Squad. Eric Reynolds joined Fantagraphics in 1993 as a journalism graduate, working as a reporter and news editor for the Comics Journal. After a thrilling ride at the forefront of covering the implosion of the direct market, he switched over to marketing, steering the company through their post-grunge boom and into the mainstream bookstore market. By 2009, 
His role had expanded such that his title became associate publisher, second to the duumvirate of company owners Gary Groth and Kim Thompson. Across the last two decades, he has also been an editor on various books and projects. Fantagraphics has a history of anthologies that fiercely reflect their individual editors' tastes and interests rather than, say, trying to showcase the publisher's stable of artists. Reynolds' catholicity of comics taste is shown by the fact that he's helmed three different anthology series, each with its own distinct character and style. The latest is the vibrant Now, whose second issue releases in January 2018. I sat with Eric in the penthouse office at Fantagraphics Towers after the release of the first issue to talk about his history as a curator of these projects. I guess technically I've even probably done a couple that would qualify beyond the the three that you're talking about okay just like random like free comic book day samples Uh, and things like that but you know but yes (laughs) so keeping your hand in between the the major projects exactly his first series was an oddity amongst fanta's eros comics line of the 1990s between the heyday of their superhero news and history magazine amazing heroes and the 21st century success of the complete peanuts reprints the publisher kept the lights on and the printers paid with an imprint of porn comics The line initially ranged from fairly cheap smut on one hand to the chance for cartoonist auteurs like Beto Hernandez, Don Simpson and Dave Cooper to sell more copies by drawing dicks, tits and jeers, while also productively working more psychosexual issues into their art than they might have previously. As Eros went on, the balance tipped more towards the smut, and while still giving opportunities to new cartoonists like Colleen Coover and Molly Keeley, stopped being a home for known artists to explore explicitly sexual work as a sidebar to their usual output. Reynolds' Dirty Stories opened that door again. As a roughly biennial series of paperback albums, the anthology gave dozens of alternative cartoonists of the time an opportunity to do sexy, funny, and weird short stories without the commitment, or perhaps unwanted exposure, of doing an entire quote-unquote porn series or graphic novel. The likes of Dan Klaus, Dylan Horrocks, Tony Millionaire, Mary Fleener, Matthias Lehman... David Lasky, Carol Swain, Rich Tommaso, Tom King, and Ellen Forney appeared across three volumes from 1997 to 2002. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was pretty young. I was I was in my I guess by that point maybe my mid 20s. I'm not even sure I can completely put myself in in those shoes and remember exactly what my motivation was, but it was a combination of several things. One being that I worked here in the office, so I saw how. Eros Comics kind of drove much of the engine that was Fantagraphics at that time. And I saw on a human level, you know, what it was like to sort of be around that stuff and work with that stuff and with my coworkers. And, you know, and and there was definitely a level of like fun loving contempt for Eros at the time (laughs) because the clientele for Eros was very different from the Fantagraphics fans. And, you know, we believed in fanographics, but some of, I think the younger staff were a little more dismissive of the Arrow stuff, including myself. So there was a little bit of like wanting to kind of take the piss out of Arrows. <laughs> but there was also, like you said, a desire to just, you know, give a cartoonist another outlet that paid just a little bit of money. I don't remember what Dirty Stories paid, but it was, I doubt it was more than, you know, 25 bucks a page or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's something. And then I also had a real kind of transgressive bent just in general myself, like in in terms of the kind of art that I liked at the time. And I got a kick out of the idea of just getting good artists to kind of do something that was really explicit and pornographic, whether or not it was erotic or or was sort of secondary to me, even though that was sort of the, the tacit point of the line. 
of the brand Eros, but uh, I was clearly coming at it more from an underground sensibility, a kind of, you know, piss off the squares kind of thing. <laughs> Basically, you know, I was lucky because Kim and Gary just let me do it. I think I just threw it out there one day and they were like, yeah, sure, go for it. So that's where it, that's where it started. Had you been doing anything on the editorial side at that point? You know, I can't, I can't remember, to be honest. I don't remember, like I, I was doing odd special projects, even All though right. my job title did not have anything to do with editorial. But there were a few other oddball projects here and there, and I can't remember exactly like which came first. I have to go back and look. But um, they trusted your uh, editorial judgment, even though you well, they did. You know, so I think, an and I think been around the office for so long that yeah, I mean, I'd worked on the journal, the comics journal, for a long time, so I think they knew that you know I was responsible on that level. And then I also think, for whatever reason, you know. I was pretty simpatico in taste with them. And, you know, that's just sort of the way things often work around here. You know, you just people who want to take a more active hand, you know, are often able to, I think. I'd like to think so anyway. Three years after Dirty Stories, Reynolds and Fantagraphics publisher Gary Groth launched a more highbrow series, again in a paperback book format, but aimed at a bookstore mainstream reader. Moam ran for six years and 28 issues, featuring one-offs, short stories by recurring contributors, serialised work by the likes of Jim Woodring, Ted Stern and Tim Hensley, interviews with artists, and the occasional foreign translation of work by David B., Killoffer, and even American expat Gilbert Shelton. We started distributing to the book trade with W.W. Norton, which is a really wonderful, independent, long-standing book distributor in the U.S. in 2001, I think. And that was a real game changer for us because it sort of helped us gain some of that legitimacy that we'd been clamoring for for a long time. In term, and I say legitimacy in terms of like they have a certain respect in the marketplace, you know, for being good curators of material and so distributing a comic book publisher like us was was kind of a game changer to further that it was uh just being able to get us into places that we couldn't get before because they lent us a certain legitimacy you know we could say it up and down but you know why would you believe us you know but coming from them people listen to them in the book business so so that was a big deal and the idea for mom kind of just percolated for a year or two and then one day I remember uh, Gary Groth and I were just talking, I think, here in his office. And I think I mentioned that I was thinking about wanting to start an anthology and that I thought the time was ripe. And he basically said, I am thinking about, I was thinking the same thing. And we put our heads together from there and came up with a plan for Moam that, that worked well right out of the gate and then quickly kind of morphed into something else, I guess. It was crafted for the book trade, and what I was really, what I was influenced by at the time, that I was really looking to were things like McSweeney's and The Baffler and Granta. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was a, a growing kind of audience for these square-bound magazines um, that had really strong content in them, and I thought that a comics anthology that sort of looked comfortable alongside those those other publications, just on the surface. Once you dove in, you'd realize like that the comic content, even though it's comics and not prose, would, would also similarly satisfy literate readers who are craving good fiction, good art. So the package was kind of evolved from that mold, but the, the content was more modeled after, and I don't even remember like why we thought this was a good idea. Well, I do, why, as I say, why we thought this was a good idea, but it was kind of modeled after Zap Comics, where we wanted it to be a collective 
of the right. same yeah the same people finite each issue, not necessarily artists. doing the same stuff and the idea was that it would just give them this big platform to grow over a regular period you know every issue you'd be churning out stuff on a on a deadline and that it would be this kind of learning ground but you know in practicality i don't think it worked out quite as well as we'd hoped and i also think that by the time it came out after after we had conceived it and we had this big like meeting at a ape alternative press expo in san francisco one year where we got like 10 cartoonists to come into forget if it was gary's hotel room or my hotel room to like you know conceive this magazine and you know are you in are you out really building that collective like you know, this is going to be the team are you that was it you yeah. on the team yeah that really was like you know that this is we're you know we're going to do this together blah 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 anyway by the time the magazine or the book whatever you want to call it finally came out i feel like a number of those people had already started to become pretty well established people like anders nilsson gabrielle bell jeff brown so like they'd already sort of like gotten to the point that <laughs> Moam was conceived to get them to, if right. that makes sense. So it just at the, after that point, it just became a somewhat more traditional anthology, I'd say, just reflecting you know our own taste. Gary dropped out, I think, after issue four or five, and just let me do it. His name stay on it as editor. Gary's. Yeah. I think like, it's. I pro- I probably kept it on for a while, yeah. and at a certain point, it probably dropped off. I don't remember. But he, yeah, but he co-edited the first like five i want to say had a good long run it's kind of amazing to look at it you know how many pages there were i mean it was like yeah something like, like three or four thousand comics pages yeah if you if you bought it every couple of months putting another chunk of that on the shelf and well then, i often like, by the time it finished i often wonder how full. many people truly bought like every single one you know i, I think you said you did but. i i did yeah i mean <laughs> I, I i can't imagine many people picking up issue 15 and uh, going oh if i ever see one again i'll pick yeah, it up right, because that's true by that point, it it's really had its sensibility in place, and there were also it had developed into that thing of carrying a bunch of serialized. Yeah, work. and the serials were were a big part of what wore me down personally. By the end, I, the serials became a little bit of a albatross yeah. through no through the, through no fault of any one cartoonist. I mean, it was really my fault editorially for allowing so many different ones to sort of come into this to the book. And in a way that, you know, as deadlines slipped or whatnot, invariably they started overlapping more than I wanted to. And that was just kind of like a rookie mistake on my part, I think, because um, I know cartoonists. Not, getting, <laughs> not riding the cartoonists harder to stay on deadline or no, just, just in terms m- of just schedule, having so much that was I going just to overlap? Committed, I, I, I committed to too many serials. Mm-hmm. Just they're in they're bound to collide and the, the that's what's worn me down on them is that you know you agree to do like a whatever four part six part serial and invariably you miss you miss one issue and then that overlaps then that interferes with whatever you had planned for the issue after that and then and a few of them just kind of went off the rails for one reason or another like i said it was no no individual cartoonist's fault it was just the the nature of the beast but there's a reason why when I started conceiving now, one of my very first like rules was no serials whatsoever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be a, uh, I also just don't want to be a, a, a venue to promote graphic novels. I mm-hmm. want it to promote short stories. You know, um, but anyway, that's another subject, I guess. With Moam, I guess Wally Gropius was kind of great as a serial in that each chapter just felt like a standalone little thing. Well, yeah, Wally's that, a perfect that, example. That theoretical reader picking up issue 15 could read this as a short and then 
pick up issue 17 and go, oh, there's another one of these. Yeah. yeah, and I couldn't think of a better example of like the, you know, the exception of the rule. Like, I mean, that Wally is like the perfect example of why I would agree to any serials in MoM. You wanted to, you wanted to enable this book into existence. Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask Tim, I think MoM really did help enable Wally to happen. I don't know if he would have seen it through at least as relatively quickly as he did you know i think it was because of moam that he kind of sat down to do it if i'm off base i apologize tim (laughs) but i don't think so and and that's awesome because i think that book is one of the singular books of the last 10 years i love that book yeah it's so much it's it's remarkable in how differently it read as oh here's this thing that pops up now again in in moam this like wacky little world of this surreal take on the 1950s, 1960s teen comics, right. but then once it actually comes together as a book, and you're reading everything back to back, there's so much depth, so much, mm-hmm. you know, one panel in one story talking to another panel, like at the other end of the book. Mm-hmm. Did uh, any of that come through, like in the initial pitch? Did you know With Wally specifically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were, like, um, seeking Hensley out, or oh, that I, I loved. That? You know, I published him in Dirty Stories, and I'd been a fan of Tim's for a long time. I was even a fan of his Like a Velvet Glove Cast in Iron soundtrack, soundtrack. that he did. Um, he was just kind of one of those fringe cartoonists that I always was into, you know, always, I, I say always, I mean, go back to the 90s was, was interested in and always wanted to see more work by him and stayed kind of in touch with him, you know, off and on over the years. And my point is just that I was, I would have happily published any Tim, anything Tim wanted to do. So I don't think there was a pitch per se. I think it was more just like, hey, you want to do something for the anthology? And then suddenly I'm getting these amazing stories every few months. Mm. Eric's new series, Now, is his first anthology to be published in closer to the standard comic book format. Floppy covers, thinner pages, but it's still an oversized, value-packed, price-per-page package. The full-color comic features short and medium-length stories by cartoonists from America and elsewhere, including Gabriel Bell, Antoine Cosset, Malachi Ward, and Sarah Corbett in the first issue. The thrice-annual series is designed to bring new voices and new work by known artists to a broader alt-comics reading audience. Yeah, it wasn't as much like, you know, periodical versus book, although you're right to an extent. It was more just like wanting to, to feel kind of utilitarian and... Let me put it this way. It's not a, so it's yeah, not a precious I mean, object. It's just a delivery device that happens to be a print delivery device. And and I really wanted it to just kind of be an unprecious um, thing that really just gets back to the stories. And, you know, like we were talking about Moam, there was the time and the place for Moam made sense. Mm. And with now, I've, for whatever reason, you know, times have changed and... I just felt a desire to be a little less precious. I felt it was really important to keep the price down. Um, so that's a huge part of it too. I just, I want it to be affordable. I want people to, to read it and I want people to buy it and feel like they're getting a good value for their money because yeah. I don't think that you can say that about a lot of comics in 2017. Yeah, it's a really solid chunk of full color, well-printed mm-hmm. stories that's still like under 10 bucks and you can roll it up and stick it in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. And comics, like, you know, I we both just went to short run. I could have dropped several hundred dollars more than I did mm. at short run. Absolutely. But I didn't because I can't afford it. You know, I live in I live in the city of Seattle, which is increasingly becoming one of the most expensive cities in America. 
um, people in my kind of peer group and, uh, you know, economic bracket are getting pushed out of the city and can't afford to live here anymore. And then I go to short run and I love short run. It was a wonderful show, really good show. But, you know, you pick up a comic sometimes, and you're like, oh, this looks great. How much is this? And it's, you know, literally $20 for a Rizo comic. And um, I'm not knocking that stuff at all. I, I'm a huge fan of that bucks. stuff, but it's impractical in a certain sense. And um, so I wanted now to be practical. I didn't want it to be self-indulgent. I want it to be, <laughs> I want people to read it. Is there uh, any particular marketing approach behind it? Whereas, you know, say, Moam was aimed at you know, more of the bookstore market. Is, are you doing anything to um, it, un- unusual to try and get this into the artier comic shops to get word out? Or? No, no, I'm not particularly. Um, I'm hoping on a cert- to a certain extent, you know, the grassroots kind of buzz and the typical kind of promotion and marketing that we do will, will, will help. I guess I'd say I do think it's more geared for the direct market. It's meant yeah. it, it. I want it to go on comic book racks, and I want it to again. I want it to kind of suck people in who are frequenting comic book stores and will find the price point alluring and the covers alluring, and then they'll dive in and realize like that there's you know maybe a bit more out there. I go, I go to the comic book shop and more often than not i leave without buying anything and um i think a lot of people are kind of similarly left wanting when they go into a comic book store Living people who don't enjoy the kind of traditional you know genre stuff of mainstream comics yeah living in australia more and more over the last 10 years or so there's been less that gets to make it through distribution channels and most of the interesting stuff that i've been able to buy was either by mail order or the last few years coming to the u.s every two years mm-hmm. and buying a bunch of stuff and mailing it home to myself to mm-hmm. yeah there's just uh you know i'm 90 percent of what's on the comic racks is has a certain sameness to it to to my from my perspective and i don't really mean to demean that that stuff i think there's good stuff in that in those genres and in that vein it's just not for me mm. and i think that there are a lot of other people like me who maybe grew up reading indie comics and alternative comics and miss them because there really isn't at the comic book shop level there really isn't a, a critical mass of stuff like that anymore like there was in the 90s and yeah. the 80s even the independent stuff now to me more often than not just seems like like ip fodder for movies or whatnot it doesn't, yeah, it yeah, doesn't feel yeah, like the, art that 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 someone needs to make out of a compulsion even the indie genre stuff of the 80s felt like this is something that people really wanted to make mm-hmm. that was a fun rollick for mm-hmm. teens and up whereas most of the dark horse and image stuff now is just here's four issues of a movie pitch that's what it seems like to me and so so part of now is is wanting to position itself in that world and make it a little bit of a better place, so to speak. Um, but that said, I also, you know, I'm trying to have it both ways and I'm hoping that it can work in a bookstore environment as well. I don't think that the, the lines are kind of as drawn as they were even when Moam was going regarding like what's a periodical and what isn't, what goes on the newsstand and what goes on the shelves. I think that, you know, there's there's more wiggle room on all those fronts. And so, you know, my hope is that now can kind of have it both ways in that way. 
So in terms of the uh, artists involved, instead of uh, going for a collective, like having an idea of mm-hmm. a core team, are you looking to have different people in every issue, having anyone recur at all? Or Yes and yes. Um, I'm ca- uh, definitely, that was one of the huge differences between Moam and even Dirty Stories was that I wanted to cast a really wide net. I wanted to kind of invite, I wanted to push myself as an editor as well and kind of broaden my own horizons a little bit and get outside of my comfort zone and my traditional kind of whatever social circle or cartooning circle. You know, I think a lot of anthologies are born out of scenes yeah, for better and for worse. And it's rare for them to sort of transcend their scene. I think you can look at something like Kramer's, which started as this tiny little thing of Sammy Harkham's. It was very much born out of his immediate yeah. world, yeah. his a, immediate a, worldview a, of comics. A few, a few people he knew that right. you know, had a few pages to throw together. So that was an example of one that sort of was able to tr- sort of transcend itself, even you know, and become become a much bigger thing. And yeah. I the think leap, you know, the leap between Kramer's one and two and Kramer's four is the most yeah. astounding development in comics, basically. Ever. Yeah, nothing yeah, has that's... ever increased, improved, expanded like that. You know, I think something like Raw, you could say the same thing about you know. The, the, they're great when they come out of these scenes, but I think like I think right now in comics there was a need for something that wasn't part of a scene and that, you know, was a little more, I don't know, democratic or or um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how quite how to articulate it, but I wanted it I I want it to uh, again to kind of fill this perceived void that I see in particularly in print media in comics form, but also just in the independent scene, in the in the small press scene, there's no consistent sensibility between any of the stories in the first issue. At least they all yeah. feel like individual artists with their own style, but everything does feel very modern. There's like not really anything that's a, a throwback to any previous style. Mm-hmm. Everyone is sort of vibrant and now, <laughs> well played. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. You know, I I do. I tend to recognize like the the connective tissue only like as I'm putting it together I tend to see things as I'm just looking at stories and considering order sequencing for stories that's when there's some weird alchemy involved where you I do I do see these these connections that I maybe can't even quite articulate but I'd like to think that that the first issue does have this kind of narrative arc almost to it or it's not in terms of like explicit themes. It's more, it's hard to say, it's hard to describe. It's more of a vibe. Um, and I did want it to feel very new. I wanted it to, f- I want it to, like I said, I'm trying to challenge myself too to embrace who the, the newest voices in comics are. Because especially as you get older, it's really easy to kind of rest on your, on your taste. You have pretty, you're, you're, you're pretty fully formed in your taste and opinions by, mm-hmm. 45 and um it can be very easy to just take that for granted and so i very much wanted to push myself to look beyond what i all too capable of just resting on or coasting on and educate and kind of broaden my own horizons basically (laughs) and i have it's really been great i I sent this kind of you know little semi-manifesto of what i wanted to do and I think I sent it to about 75 or so people. And since then, I've probably in some way or form invited upwards of 200 people now. And it's not like I want you to do something for the next issue. It's more just like I'm doing this, you know, think about it, 
you asked about like if I want people to be in every issue and I don't I don't want it to be that kind of a deadline burden I want it to be fun I, I just want it to be a good venue for the cartoonists and I want them to do good work that they could feel good about without feeling pressured to have to do mm-hmm. I want them to experiment at their own speed and I have faith that if I if they do that that it'll be good and interesting and worth it on the other end for the, those of us reading it with the first issue <clears throat> out now there's a couple of pieces that obviously existed previously how much of it was specifically drawn by people after they got the invitation they were like all right great I've um you know that's a good question I don't know if I could quantify it off the top of my head but for example uh one of the first people who replied to my first email was Eleanor Davis and her story in there fight or fuck yeah she had just finished and she was uh I think she had intended on making a mini comic out of it wow i was specifically thinking of that one because yeah it's a it's a little more and abstract i just and, and, and playful so sh- and scary than a lot of her other stuff but. yes and i felt like that strip in particular set a tone that really resonated with me in the year 2017 mm. with everything going on in the world questions about lgbtq rights and minority rights and um, everything going on since Trump was elected. Trump was the Trump election was a huge motivator to me to get now off the ground. I'd been thinking about it for a year or mm-hmm. maybe two years, and it was after the election, around before the inauguration, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where I was just, you know, just every fucking morning, just waking up and wondering what new fresh hell are we exposed to today, and I don't want now to be political, but. It, but art is political, and uh, I'm not someone who has really any interest in political, explicitly political art. I'm not a huge fan of editorial cartooning in general. But and, artists responding to the world around but, them. But, you know, what is art if it's not kind of processing the world around you? And, and that is inherently going to have some level of politicization to it. And, and I think that that comes through in now number one. And even number two as well, um, which isn't out yet, but it's done. And, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of explicit political content in there that's uh, specifically about, you know, anything that's happened in the U.S. in the past year. But you do feel like, you know, it's a reaction or a processing of all the bullshit that's going on. But at the same time, there's a level of kind of hopefulness to some of it, too. I think Eleanor's piece has a real edge to it, but I think it's also got a kind of sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, part of what makes her so great but i i think the the content from issue to issue so far it resonates with me and i hope it resonates with other people i hope it comes as a as a as a welcome presence you know in a sea of shit (laughs) that we live in you say you've approached about 200 artists Mm -hmm. and you've got the first two issues yeah compiled there it's 100 pages uh, no, the first one's 128 the second one's 120 wow and i expect most of them to be right around there with all of that material potentially coming in, are you committed to anyone before you see it? How how full um, do you think you're you're going to be before you get overloaded? I was really lo- overloaded up front because I did get a lot of stuff kind of quickly. I think just because there was an initial enthusiasm and and I've kind of sorted through that and I feel pretty good about where I am right now as far as being on top of things for the in near future. Like right now, I probably have enough material. You know, if I had to, I could probably put together two full issues. I don't have to wrap up. I don't have to send number three to press until around Christmas. So I do have a lot of material. I try to keep it as 
non-committal and organic as I can. I like I, I get a lot of pleasure personally out of sequencing each issue. And I really think that's where you get this kind of, you know, strange alchemy or strange greater than the sum of its parts um, quality that a good anthology should have. And that really is me just sitting down on the ground, you know, with with all the pages printed out and just kind of looking <laughs> what needs to start on the left side, what needs to start on the right. Here's a long story, short story. So you're thinking about the kind of pacing yeah. of that and then and then the content, which the most important thing, you know, thinking about how what what that experience is like moving from this story and then shifting into this story is it a, a jarring transition you're looking for something that feels kind of that feels like a kind of organic transition and i feel i feel like i'm pretty good at it you know so i so i enjoy doing it with the pieces that pre-existed like the semi harkham one page there had been a poster for mm-hmm. Sina family the jc menu was obviously yeah that was done for a french anthology I think I read. Had I read the Noah Van Skyver autobiographical piece somewhere before? Uh, no. I, okay. You know, I could be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure Noah's piece was done for now. Okay. Menu was someone I'd I was you know internet friendly with and um, have admired him from afar for a long time as a publisher and an editor and a cartoonist. Um, so when I when I was coming up with an initial list of people to ask to contribute to now, he was on my early list because I just thought like, oh, fuck yeah, I want to get, you know, the editor of Lapine and one of the co-publishers of La Socion, you know, to, to, to be in this anthology because he's never been published in the U.S. really. I don't think he's ever been translated in English until now number one. And he's one of the kind of seminal... Kim had never got a short story into... Maybe there was one in Zero Zero... zero. I can't remember, but you know, he's one of the seminal cartoonists of his generation in France and all of the Lasso guys have been published over here in some form or another to varying degrees of success. <laughs> and he hadn't, you know, he's like, and he was also one of the very first people to write me back when I sent the email out and his response was so great. It was just super enthusiastic and he was kind of cheering me on. So I, his presence is particularly satisfying to me generally you're not looking at pieces that existed and going can we have that one it's just that's would true you like but i involved and people yeah. are like i have this right that's right. true and, and i prefer it to be brand new but i don't yeah. have a hard and fast rule it's all a matter of like you know how many people have realistically seen yeah. this yeah. no no one in america is going to have seen right. the menu the harker right. piece was a poster sold you right. know one day or online exactly and i i liked the sammy piece Probably nobody will ever notice this, but now number one opens with uh, Sarah Corbett's kind of silent one-page strip about the old lady sitting on the shore. And it kind of is a nice bookend with Sammy's, where they both start with someone kind of staring out at the water. I found that just kind of be to be symbolically <laughs> kind of interesting. <laughs> so so that, that was the main reason I put that Sammy strip in there. I felt it complemented the start of the book. The anthology is coming out three times a year. So how long a lead? So I'll be sending off now number one, like around New Year. I mean, now number three, excuse me. And around New Year's, I'd say, or Christmas. And it'll hit stores sometime in May. So it's really like uh, one five months, I guess. That's mostly just because of it being printed overseas. (sighs) Just got to hope the world stays terrible. So people (laughs) reacting to it still makes sense to the readers of... I have, I have, I, I'm very uh, optimistically confident <laughs> that it, yeah. 
<laughs> How long are you? Uh, do you think it's going to be able to last? Well, that's the you, kind of you, the, you the million dollar question. I, I'd like. I think realistically, I think I can at least commit to two or three years, and then at that point, it just becomes a financial thing. Like, I, you know, if it's a liability to Fantagraphics, I'm not going to do it. That was also one of the reasons I stopped. I stopped doing Moam was I could see the the writing on the wall, mm. and um, I didn't want to put Kim and Gary in a position to you know have to cancel it which i'm sure they would have been very reluctant to do just out of loyalty to me so you know i take responsibility with that and i've crafted a model for now that um i think will sustain itself for a few issues and then it's just a matter of whether or not it gains any traction in the marketplace and sells a little bit better and and really becomes viable or not the anecdotal evidence on the first issue has been really, really encouraging, and this has kind of been something I've thinking, been thinking about for the last week. I've gotten, I mean, yourself included, I've gotten, I've had a lot of people congratulate me and compliment me on the first issue, and I'm only um, surprised to hear it, I guess, in as much as I feel like I, I never heard anything about Moam. It, it's weird. I mean, I was very proud of Moam, and I think we accomplished a lot. But I, at no point do I remember really getting a lot of feedback, aside from the participating ar- artists, basically. <laughs> I got the so new I, issue. I My strip looks great. So I, I can't figure... I, I, all I can think of is it must just be a, a, a reflection of how social media has changed over the intervening you know, 10, 12 years. So people just reach out to you on Twitter and yeah. say, loved it. Right, right. So that's been great. I, I, and... Just from what I've seen, it's only been a couple of weeks, but the orders seem to be okay. The initial reorders orders were okay, and then reorders have been decent. Um, so I'm hoping that all it really needs to do is just not really crater in sales mm. over you know over the issues like three to five. Most most series you know have a pretty traditional selling arc whether it's an anthology or a comic book series you know they tend to second issue tends to sell worse than the first third issue tends to sell worse than the second and then you hope that sometime in that issue three four five zone things kind of level out and you start to inch back up and uh i think that that is not an unrealistic goal here we were talking about finding new art at places like Short Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting that Fantagraphics was one of the only publishers, exhibitors that really had uh, a table full of books yeah, with yeah, spines right, there. Right. I was wondering if doing shows like that, once you've got a few issues of now, you've Fantagraphics had its, its first like regular comic book in years coming out with the uh, reprint of Hip Hop. Yeah, yeah, Hip Hop Family Tree. I love the periodical format, just personally. I, I'm... Yeah, that's what I grew up with, and uh, I think that it has a real value uh, aesthetically, and I think developmentally. Yeah, for an it's artist. a much more efficient way to find an artist. Uh, go, well, I'm going to buy economically twenty nine dollar graphic novel, and mm-hmm. then you know you also get the fun of being in on the ground floor of someone mm-hmm. and seeing them develop. Which, as a you know fan of anything, a writer, a musician, a cartoonist, to be able to follow someone. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a real value to it. And unfortunately, that's been like one of the byproducts of all of the success that the art form has had over the past 20 years is that as comics have gained legitimacy, the comic book format has sort of gained illegitimacy Mm. uh, because it's just does not have an intrinsic 
perception of being have any aesthetic merit you yeah. know but that's what i love about it right you know it is what it is it's a comic book yeah well you should mention in case anyone listens to this that hasn't seen the issue that it is actually an attractive <laughs> uh, beautiful thing to handle it's, it's not a it's not a shoddy stapled newsprint thing it's a, a very glossy uh, glue but square bound it's a glorified comic. comic book i wrestled a lot with the trim size of the comic uh, more even more than the title of the anthology, I wrestle with the trim size because I did want it to look good on a comic book rack, but not be the exact dimensions. But, well, the exact dimensions of a comic—it's really weird. I—I I was just reading that Chris Ware monograph that just came out, and mm-hmm. at one point he kind of makes a funny reference to the traditional trim size of an American comic book, which is a perplexing dimension of like six and five eighths by ten and three sixteenths, and and he described it as like. A, a repulsive proportion or something, repulsive <laughs> or repugnant or something. And I thought that was like a funny way to put it, you know, that the idea that a, that a trim size could be aesthetically offensive. But I kind of understand what he means because it is a rather inelegant size. It's very tall and narrow. You know, the, the, the reason that uh, the Hernandez brothers have always done Love and Rockets uh, it started out as a magazine mm-hmm. and they've kept... They've kept the, their proportions even during different iterations of Love of Rockets because they believe there's just something, a more intrinsic template, you know, to, to, to their storytelling in this squatter format rather than this taller, narrow format. I'm not, I'm not sure I can quite articulate, you know, why, but... They did, um, they did change proportions on They Love did for volume two, two and they hated it. Yeah. And so that's why they went back to it for new stories. And so, that's yeah. why, even though they were publishing it in that smaller, almost moan-like format. Yeah, it was. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I wrestled with this because there is, I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but there's just, there is something just kind of graphically inelegant about this taller, narrower proportion i much more gravitate towards like now was now was a squatter you know more magazine proportion but again i i really wanted it to to look good on the comic book racks and i felt like the time was ripe for the right thing in that environment and so i kind of tried to have it both ways and compromise by making it the same height as a comic book but just a little bit wider and I think it works. Brandon Graham's Island anthology tried to go for a different trim size. You know, for, quite frankly, Island well. Island was a total uh, influence on the format of now. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to keep to having yeah. the the glue bound and the glossy. Right. It went to that horrible coverless feel that you know, right. we're, we're talking about how shoddy the content seems in image and dark horse type books but any comic you pick up browsing in a comic shop these days just feels insubstantial because they don't have a cover on them yeah it's true i thought island though you know was a great attempt at you know value for the money i think yeah. brandon was my scent my tastes are very different from brandon's a lot of time uh, i think he's a great cartoonist though and i and a, a really great kind of ambassador for the art form he's a really good thinker about the language of comics so even though a lot of the kind of more sci-fi, cheesecakey, weird post-heavy metal kind of stuff that was in there that didn't always work for me, I actually bought almost all of them, if not all of them, and uh, I think it was a, a cool thing. And I liked the format. I liked the square bound, like eight dollar, good mm-hmm. chunk of comics. And I think that 
I'd be lying if I didn't say like that was a huge like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I should do something like that, but with our own spin on it. I was sorry to see though, it didn't seem like, you know, it, I, I don't know what the circumstances were of why it ended, but I can only assume it's because, you know, the marketplace spoke or whatever. Yeah, I'm So sure. that was kind of a drag because I'd like to think, you know, it would, it would, it would have this healthy run because there's such an appetite for comics anthologies, but probably not. It probably was also hurt to some degree by the fact that there were continuing stories that didn't appear in each issue that it sort of ran up into that yeah maybe maybe on the situation. other hand i'd say like you know they think the the kind of genre content of it you know would probably have a broader appeal than in, in comic book shops than a lot of the stuff in now so i don't know yeah know. but if it's getting that genre reader they want to come back each month and know that the next chapter is there until it's done as opposed to everything's disappeared now there's like some <laughs> fair enough <laughs> some yeah. soft pastel drawings by someone that wasn't in the previous issue well i feel for brandon i can relate to that <laughs> so what's coming up in the next issues you've said number two is done number three is coming together number two has a long story by a south american cartoonist named fabio zimbres whose work i've admired kind of from afar for a long time and this is a story that he actually did in the 90s and kind of like Eleanor's story I read it and it just felt exceptionally resonant for today even though it was done 20 years ago and my friend Matt Madden I knew was really good friends with Fabio and he translated it for me so I'm happy to have that in there there's another Dash Shaw story I think Dash oh, is fantastic. the I think Dash is the only cartoonist who will be in all three of the first three issues um, which kind of speaks to Dash's true professionalism and and um, prolificness. He's kind of amazing. I mean, he's got like a he's got a toddler and a movie, you know, screenwriting career and a comics career, and he's like the most reliable cartoonist I know. He's also a cartoonist who seems to always be looking to do something new as well. So well, having, I think having I think that that's venue true. is probably. I hope that's true. That's for him. I appreciate that because I I'd like to think that's exactly right. You know, I hope I'm not fooling myself, but I think that's true. I think he's kind of someone who's excited to hear about a potential platform and kind of sees his day and, you know, and then it, and literally like a week later, I'll have a wonderful, awesome four-page story or whatever. I have a pretty good idea of what's going to be in number three, but I also have probably more than I am really going to be able to fit in number three. So I'm going to have to make a couple of choices as far as what gets bumped to number four. So I almost hesitate to say names because of that. Sure. Um, but, I mean, I doubt anybody will sue me or something or try to return the comic later, I guess, if I <laughs> if that person's not in there. But one thing I'm really excited about is uh, there's a, a story by a cartoonist named Anne Simon, who's a French cartoonist. Mm -hmm. We're going to publish her first graphic novel uh, next summer and this is a short story that she did with some of the same characters i know brow has published some of her stuff before i guess but i don't think anybody in the u.s has really published her too much if at all um, but she's a really great cartoonist just pure comics really great voice um, she draws beautifully that kind of a, reminds me a little bit of tony millionaire matthias lehman a french, another french cartoonist has okay. a has a story in the issue there will be another JC menu uh, story in number three. Very um, so there's the, so yeah, that's odd. Three, three Frenchies. Um, I'm I love the cover of number two. I'm really happy with the first two covers of now. The first one was by, uh, Rebecca Morgan. And the second one is by Christian Rex Van Minen. And I'm having a lot of fun with those. And it's not like I've come up with any great concept other than 
it's just great to find like a cool piece of, of fine art that kind of relates to the cartooning idiom in some way and just makes for a beautifully illustrative cover. That's yeah, been there's really there's cool. no copy on the cover. There's just this very graphic design logo. That... The, the graphic design was a reaction to the, co- the cover art where it was like, oh, we can't cover this up, mm-hmm. you know? I was talking to Sammy Harkham actually about it, and he was saying that he felt like it should look, since I'm embracing the kind of format of more of a periodical, that he felt like I should brand it more like as a magazine. Yeah. And I totally saw his point, and I think you know he's probably Fake got a very in good the corner. 128 yes. pages, just 995. Brought some names, yeah. you know. Ah, oh, boy, I just felt like I can't, you know, this these this art's so great, I can't cover it up with a bunch of you know heart marketing hyperbole yeah, a, or whatnot. It's a spectacular image. Um, it just it really pops on a shelf yeah, on a table. Thank you. And even the name now was conceived entirely because it was, I mean, one of the things that appealed to me was that it was so short and I knew that graphically, you know, you could kind of do anything with it. That was one of the main reasons I picked Moam too. I kind of don't give a shit what the name is in a way. It's more like how does, how do they work as little glyphs on the cover, you know, in relation to the art. Even the back cover is sort of very understated in the the listing of names, slightly italicized, seraphish. Yeah, the, the, that's all Jacob Covey, the Fanographics art director. Yeah. I let him just, you know, run with the design. And I think he did a great job. He and I are very simpatico in our sensibilities, I think, and make a good team. And, you know, another another thing is, like, maybe this is testament to what a seasoned professional I am. It's important to me to create a template for the series that is manageable. Mm. And that means a a slightly more austere kind of uh, approach and as fun and tempting as it can be to kind of want to put a strong editorial imprint in terms of a a strong editorial voice and have a letters page and you know editorials and things like that in a very on a very practical level it's much easier for me if i don't and and it enables me to just focus on the comics yeah. and get it out regularly. So that's so that there's a kind of a reason behind that too. Maybe that's a all a all an extravagant way of saying that I'm just kind of lazy. And but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do have other things to do than just now. I love that <clears throat> Sammy Harkham, the publisher of some of the most completely incomprehensible and obscure covers of anthologies and comics <laughs> history is like, why are you putting <laughs> names and info on the front cover? Well, Sammy's got, Sammy's, you know, he's a thinker and he's got good, great instincts and he thinks like a publisher and, uh, you know, he knows, uh, you know, what's good for the goose may not be good for the gander. <laughs> and um, I think he's smart enough to realize yeah. that now is not Kramer's and, um, and that's cool, you know, that, that I'm going for a, a little bit of a different thing. And it's partly because you have such amazing anthologies out there as Kramer's that I don't need to do, I don't need to, to do the event anthology, you know, I, I, the once a year precious art object. Mm. I mean that in the most complimentary way. Mm. I, I work with Sammy to publish Kramer's and I love it. But, um, you know, I'm positioning now as this kind of aesthetic sibling but in a in a format sense it's it's kind of the exact opposite spectrum it really is just this kind of receptacle for this art yes i want it to be handsome for what it is but i'm purposefully not getting caught up in that side of it the the production and the packaging and the design so eric reynolds thank you very much yeah thank you i appreciate it
Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be free of hope And I'm at the end of my rope It's so tough just to be alive When I feel like the living dead I'm giving it up so plain I'm living my life in vain And where am I going to? I gotta really try Try so hard to get by And where am I going to? We're down And there ain't any love left around Everybody wearing a frown Waiting for Santa to come to town You're giving it up so plain You're living your lives in vain And where are you going to? You gotta really try 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 so hard to get by And where are you going to? Bye.